I'm proud to be a Jew, but that's way too Jewish for me. <laughs> Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Emily Tampkin, author of the new book, Bad Jews. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2jewishradio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2jewishradio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. My friends have a question for you. What exactly constitutes a revolution? My favorite podcast, besides 2Jewish, of course, for many months has been Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, in which he examines a series of revolutions that transformed the early modern and modern Western world. He concludes that a revolution can be either a political revolution, a social revolution, or both. For example, a political revolution that wasn't a social revolution at all would be the American Revolution. A social revolution that wasn't a political revolution would be, say, the Industrial Revolution. And revolution that transformed both politics and the social order would be the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution. But there's another kind of revolution that changes the way that life is lived. A thought revolution that is also an emotional revolution. It occurs when a new approach to spirituality arises and transforms the way people believe, feel, and live. And it's exactly that sort of revolution that we've been exploring in the Torah portions of Genesis that we read in the synagogue over these weeks of autumn, and that records a spiritual record of the way our own Jewish people transformed the world by insisting there is just one God, that only God is the true source of morality and ethics. In a world of polytheism, filled with multiple gods and contrasting systems of morality, this was truly revolutionary in every sense of the term. Nobody thought that way, and the shocking idea that one God created everything and was the origin for the ethical structure of what we need to do to be good— and to create a good society, was totally alien in that world. Well, it eventually caught on, but it remained a minority belief system throughout antiquity and much later. In many ways, it still is a minority position to take in spite of nearly 4,000 years of Jewish development and the development of civilization. In our own world today, the alienation from religious belief and practice, on the one hand, vies with the insistence that only one path to God must be followed, on the other hand. The concept that one God of ethics is the source of a morality anyone can follow, however he or she or they practice their religious experience, or don't, is somehow still lost on most people which makes the unique faith of Abraham, the belief in a God with whom we can be in covenant, who gives us the strength and courage to be truly good and to work to make our society truly good, still pretty revolutionary. 
Imagine if people adopted the idea that acting well was the proper course in every situation because the God they were committed to required it. Imagine. It's an aspiration, of course, and has been since the time of Abraham, all those centuries and millennia ago. But the message that the God who created the universe seeks goodness from us, that our free will actions can bring about positive change in the world, and that it is in all of our best interests to act well, well, that remains fresh and powerful. It's Jewish, but it's also pretty universal, and it can certainly help our troubled world now, as it did way back in Abraham's time. Play us in this morning on Too Jewish. Here's a song from Yehuda Polaker. Yesh Tvarim Sheratziti Lomar. There are things I wanted to say. Yesh Tvarim Sheratziti Lomar. Veinam Namin. Hamilim Shebacharti Enam. Hatovot Nikulam. Hamukim Miniyam Asodot. Sheinam Uvanim. שאולי לא אבין, לא אבין לעולם, לא בכל הדרכים שרציתי ללכת הלכתי, בדרכים שהלכתי טעיתי ודאי לא פעם אחת, ועצבות מעלה כל שמחה, כל שמחה ששמחתי, כמו ביקשתי דבר שעבד חלומות שחלמתי והם מקיצים בידיים שבריהם בעיניים נשטפים מפניי בדמעה ולילות יסורים לא ספורים שהטבעתי ביין כעובד בדרכי בדרכי הרעה אך בכל הדרכים מעולם לא עבדה לי דרכנו וגם אם לפעמים סערו מסביב הרוחות ואהבתי אותך והערב הוא טוב, טוב על דודינו והיה לנו רע ואהבתי אותך לא פחות That was Yehuda Poliker and his song, There Are Things I Wanted to Say. Our guest this morning, Emily Tampkin, is a journalist with a new book on just how Jews have spoken about each other over the last century or so, and when and why we call each other bad Jews, which we do often. Find out all about it when we come back in a moment here on Two Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors. and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul 
of Tucson, enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome to Two Jewish our guests this morning. Emily Tampkin is senior editor of the New Statesman, the American version, author of The Influence of Soros, and the author of the new book, Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. So, um, first of all, where did the genesis for this book come from? Uh, you'd just written kind of about all the conspiracy theories, the Soros books, very interesting book. Uh, but this is a much broader subject. Um, why'd you write it? This sort of came directly from the first book in that I, one of the, one of the defenses people make when they're accused of making anti-Semitic attacks against Soros is well, I don't even think of him as Jewish. He's not really Jewish. Look at his relationship to Israel. He doesn't go to shul, et cetera. Um, this really bothered me. And I think not just because of Soros, but because of me and, and because of other Jewish people I know. Oh, no. Does that make you a bad Jew? My goodness. I think I did worry that I was a bad Jew before writing this book and before exploring the last hundred years of how we use that label uh, against one another and against ourselves. You know, it's funny. I, uh, I actually did a sermon called Bad Jews a couple of high holidays ago um, based on a conversation I'd had with a friend's son who was making a list of bad Jews. But his categories didn't have anything to do with observance. And in fact, the way we think about Jews being good Jews and bad Jews really doesn't have that much to do with how often they go to shul, does it? I think sometimes it is used in terms of level of religious observance, but often it's used politically. So if you, you know, if you have the, the, the wrong opinion on Israel or if you're voting for the wrong political party or so on and so forth, it's, you know, we sort of lob Shonda Fertigoyim back and forth across the political aisle at one another. And, and I'll also say that um, I did over 150 interviews for this book and often closed asking what do you think when I say the term bad Jew? And the most common answer I got was, well, I think of myself. Um, and so I think it's something that we've really internalized too. As a rabbi, I have to say, if we considered everybody who didn't go to the synagogue regularly or keep kosher a bad Jew, we'd be eliminating the vast majority of American Jews, certainly. Besides the internalization, uh, this has been, as you delineated in your book, um, a kind of a political dis- determination for a lot of times, hasn't it? Oh, very often. And I think the other part of the reason that I wrote this is that we're in this moment now where, I mean, um, former President Donald Trump actually tweeted this, I think, two days before the book came out, that more American Jews should really be voting for him because of his stance on Israel. And you, it was, you had a very interesting reaction where you had many American Jews say that they were offended by this. Um, and some conservative American Jews say, no, actually, I agree with this. And so it's it's sort of um, these assumptions that are baked in both in America more broadly and within Amer- between American Jews ourselves about how how we how we think we're supposed to be Jewish in this country. How are we supposed to engage with political life? We will talk much more with Emily Tampkin, the author of the compelling new nonfiction book, Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. We come back in a moment here on Too Jewish. 
Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in the northwest of Tucson in the Catalina foothills, celebrates a fabulous array of services, classes, and events this fall and winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy, our motto. A progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the Catalina foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the whole metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. And this week, we have a very special downtown Shabbat at the Jewish History Museum. It's at 7 p.m. this Friday night. Don't miss it. Join us in person for Shabbat services, or you can come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in person. Call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. Beit Simcha's religious school is going for school-aged children or grandchildren. Join us for our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation, teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with outstanding Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Join us in person or on our Facebook page, that's Beit Simcha Tucson, or go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, for more information. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. You can access those by going to our website. Our wonderful religious school is available in blended format, too. Some students live, some on Zoom. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, Downtown Shabbat this Friday night at 7 p.m. Our great religious school and Torah Tykes programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation, life cycle celebrations, and high school programs, and rich array of adult education academy courses live and on Zoom. And of course, all of our services in person and on our Facebook page, go to BeitSimchaTucson.org. That's B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org or call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. BeitSimchaTucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest growing Jewish congregation in all of Arizona in its exciting beginning years. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, a kvetch or kvel, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O JewishRadio18 at gmail. Or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website. Streaming us from there, downloading us on the Apple iTunes Store is very popular Jewish podcast. Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine. Over 175,000 downloads on Podbean and on Spotify. Post a rating. Give us five stars. Review 2Jewish wherever you listen to our podcast. All of those ratings help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. 
the most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona. Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, conservative, and orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. Uh, I want to add something on our discussion. We were talking about how we talk about oh, German Jews or Hungarian Jews even or Italian Jews, French Jews. That That's not really accurate, right? Jews come from somewhere within a country and it most of these were not really fully countries until quite late and even something like Britain, which had an earlier genesis, perhaps, there are definitely differences with Jews in different parts of the country, and it's based on their relationship. It's a united kingdom of England, Scotland, and Wales, yep. and those are three very different countries with different languages, And, and by the way, histories. Irish Jews, now that's a different country, but it wasn't for well, much of Northern its history. Ireland is part of the UK, Correct. so I, yeah. I omitted that, and yep. that's a fair point. Yeah. Um, I, I think about how in America people say, you know, you say, oh, where's your family from? Well, they're from Russia. Well... That could mean anywhere from Poland to Lithuania to Ukraine to Belarusia to Odessa. Like there's many different places which were really not Russian in any great sense until fairly late. If ever. I mean, yeah. great example is where Mrs. Zelensky met with Jill Biden. Is the town called Ushorod, which is now in the far west of Ukraine, but historically was part of Austro-Hungary. And before that, it was part of the Kingdom of Hungary. My grandparents grew up there (laughs) and their entire family. I mean, we have family trees going back to the early 1800s. And they were all from this town, which in Hungarian is called Ungvar. You don't even recognize, you don't hear Ungvar when you see Ushorod. And we're Mrs. Biden and Mrs. Zelensky met is now Ukrainian. It was formerly part of the Soviet Union. It was never part of Russia. It was Austro-Hungary. It was Hungarian. And my grandparents and all their relatives considered themselves Hungarian. So it's a perfect example. It's still sort of, we're from Russia. Well, well. You well, know. yeah. I mean, and I, I like my, my mom's parents were from Russia, Poland. And you're like, what country is Russia, Poland? Well, it's not. They were from a small town called Krynik near Bialystok, sort of. And that was part of Poland that was dismembered and taken over by Russia at the end of the 18th century. So they still realized it was Poland, but it was controlled by Russia. Then there was the other part of Poland that was controlled by Prussia and so on. Then the part that was controlled by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And it's just kind of very messy. Um, That 
but the idea of like your family, they didn't think of themselves as Hungarian. They thought of themselves as Hungarian Jews, didn't they? They thought of themselves as Hungarians. That's interesting because I I don't think that my dad's father, for example, who came from Minsk, Gibernia, which is now Belarusia, but it was Russia, pretty sure he didn't think of himself as a Russian first and a Jew second. You know, it was very clear that he was a Jew and not um, fully accepted by, you know, the Russian empire in which he lived. Um, that that identity is always an interesting question. We used to have this game in religious school. People would say, oh, are you an American first or a Jew first? And that dual loyalty stuff. Uh, now, that was really for us. We were Americans, right? We didn't think about it any other way, but we were American Jews. Yeah, but it's a dumb question because one is a religion and one is a nationality. They're not the same, except, except. on Soviet passports, yep. where there's a category Yevray. called nationality. Yeah. And Jewish is one of the nationalities of the former Soviet Union. Yeah. Now, normal, rational people, which excludes Russians by definition, <laughs> um, realize that there's a difference between nationality and religion. So you could be a Catholic and Portuguese or a Catholic and German. And you don't you don't have to choose which right. are you. You're right. both. And and I think I think in this day and age in which there's this rise of anti Semitism is, oh well if you're a Jew you're 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 not an American, you're an Israeli or something. That's preposterous, right? But we hear that too. So I, I think it's it's valuable to understand that distinction and it's a distinction we need to maintain. Thanks, Tom. We will talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Two Jewish as a public service. Herschel was a good and pious man at Sadiq and Achasit. And when he passed away, God greeted him at the pearly gates and showed him around heaven. Finally, after the full tour of the beautiful environs, God said, It's getting close to dinner time, and asked Herschel, Are you hungry? I could eat, Herschel replied. So God opened a little jar of pickled herring, and they shared it. The next day, when Herschel got up, God asked him if he wanted breakfast, and Herschel said, Sure, I wouldn't mind. And God again opened a jar of pickled herring, and they shared it. Midday, God asked Herschel if he wanted lunch, and Herschel said, sure, no, why not? Again, God took out a jar of pickled herring, and they split it. While eating this humble and now quite familiar meal, Herschel looked down into hell. He was shocked to see the inhabitants there were devouring caviar, enormous steaks, pheasants, roast beef, pastries, potatoes, vodka, brandy, desserts, you name it. Meekly, Herschel said to God, Lord, I'm very happy to be in heaven as a reward for the good life I lived. But this is heaven, and all I get to eat is pickled herring. But in the other place, you know, Gehenna, they get steak, caviar, pheasants, champagne, desserts. They eat like kings. I, I don't understand. To be honest, Herschel, God said, for just two people, it doesn't pay to cook. That was the old Jewish joke of the week special feature of two Jewish. Just for you, you should live and be well. And now a word of Torah. 
This week we read the portion of Chaye Sarah, which marks a transition in our Genesis narrative from the tales of Abraham and Sarah, our first Jewish father and mother, to the next generation featuring Isaac and Rebekah. But first we must begin with an ending. At the start of the portion, we are told of the length of Sarah's life, and almost by accident, we learn of Sarah's death. The life of Sarah was 100 years and 20 years and 7 years, the Sedra begins, and a famous Midrash on it tells us Sarah was just as beautiful at the age of 100 as she had been at 20, and just as free of sin at 20 as she had been at 7. It's a fine encomium for a significant figure who now passes from the scene. Chaye Sarah is also a portion filled with negotiations that have great influence on the future of the fledgling religion, someday to be known as Judaism. The first extended section of Chaye Sarah is actually dedicated to arranging Sarah's funeral. It involves Abraham purchasing the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, first piece of real estate owned by our people in what will come to be known as the land of Israel. That cave became the burial place not only for Sarah, but for most of the patriarchs and matriarchs. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah eventually all found their final resting place in Hebron. In Chaye Sarah, the purchase of this plot involves an extended bargaining session with the Hittite who owns it, and the payment of a huge sum for the first permanently Jewish land in the world, establishing Jewish legitimacy in the Middle East at a very early point in history. I once visited Machpelah many years ago when it was safe to travel to Hebron, and they let Jews go down into that cave. It's an interesting shrine. Not worth the potential danger to life and limb implicit in a trip to Palestinian Hebron these days, perhaps, but still interesting. The narrative then moves us forward with one last important detailed episode of Abraham's life. Avraham is old. He sees that his son Yitzchak, his son Isaac, has not married, and perhaps seems unlikely to do so without parental intervention. He charges his trusted servant to go back to the old country of Sumeria, today's Iraq, or maybe Turkey, and bring back a suitable girl for Isaac to marry, to carry on the line of believers in the one true God. After a great journey and the first extended prayer passage in the whole Torah, the servant meets Rebekah drawing water from the city well in Haran. He knows she is the one for Isaac because she shows great generosity and intelligence. He too, the servant, bargains, in this case with Rebecca's duplicitous brother and father. Eventually, however, the servant arranges for her to become Isaac's wife, but at the crucial moment of the narrative, Rebecca's family puts the question to her, Will you go with this man? That is, will she leave all she's known and journey to an unknown land and future husband? This final negotiation of Chaye Sarah is brief. Rebecca agrees with alacrity to go along. Yes, she will leave the homeland and her father's house and go to the land that will be shown to her. And so she goes and meets Isaac, and the future of the people and of monotheism is assured. These three negotiations revolve around crucial elements in our people's history, land, descendants, and destiny. Without descendants, of course, we would have simply ceased to be Without the courageous choice of women and men like Rebecca and Abraham before her, our destiny would have been disappearance.
As Jews, these remain our principal goals today, and often they still require negotiation to achieve. A secure land of Israel. Our children and grandchildren's commitment to Judaism. And the destiny of our people as a moral light to the nations. Well worth achieving. When we come back on to Jewish, our guest this morning, Emily Tampkin, explores how Jews have talked about each other for the past, oh, 150 years or so, and when and why we called each other bad Jews. Find out. We'll return in a moment here on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. Thank God the election of 2022 and all of its terrible ads are mostly over, save for counting some votes and one runoff election in Georgia that will decide which party controls the Senate. We do know that many Jewish candidates did very well and a couple not so well. Perhaps the biggest winner was Josh Shapiro, the newly elected governor of the key state, indeed the keystone state of Pennsylvania. Shapiro, a conservative Jew who keeps kosher and attends shul and made his religious beliefs a significant part of his identity, defeated an avowed Christian nationalist by a solid margin in what is typically called a purple state. Pennsylvania narrowly voted for Donald Trump in 2016, but went for Joe Biden in 2020. Shapiro emerged as perhaps a rising star politically with potential national aspirations. Seven newly elected members of the House of Representatives are Jewish, five Democrats and two Republicans. They will join 26 current Jewish members of the 435-seat Congress. Two prominent Jewish politicians, however, will not be there. Democrat Elaine Luria lost her seat in a Virginia election, and Republican Lee Zeldin ran unsuccessfully for governor of New York. In addition, Adam Frisch, a Jewish Democrat, is locked in an incredibly tight race against election-denying pro-Trump Republican Lauren Boebert in Colorado. That one may require a recount. The 33 or so Jewish congresspeople join 10 Jewish senators, which means that about 8% of national legislators are Jewish. We Jews make up under 2% of the U.S. population overall. That means that while Jews surely do not control America, we are well represented in both the House and Senate. In Israel, the negotiations to form the next government continue with an agreement among the conservative bloc forming around Bibi Netanyahu. They are insisting on a legislative override of Israeli Supreme Court decisions as a condition of joining Netanyahu's government. Netanyahu will have a 64-seat coalition in the Knesset, three over the necessary 61-seat majority. The debate between the parties allied with Bibi is whether a simple 61-vote Knesset majority should be required to override Supreme Court decisions in Israel or a supermajority of 70 votes. Since there is as yet no agreement among the parties, Netanyahu will form the government first and then see which way the winds blow when he attempts to change Israeli national politics. It is expected that the new Israeli government will be in place within another week or so. And, in a bit of a shock, Satmar Grand Rebbe Aaron Teitelbaum, in a beginning-of-semester address to Satmar Yeshiva students in Kiryas Yoel, one that was then published all around, Kiryas Yoel, of course, is in New York, said that Trumpism has infiltrated the Jewish camp and twisted so many minds. 
The Satmar Rebbe's words came two days after the U.S. midterm elections, during which Democrat Kathy Hochul became the governor of New York State, beating out Jewish Republican Trump ally Lee Zeldin. Zeldin had very strong support among New York's Haredi voting population. According to Sotner headquarters, the Rebbe blamed many in his community for being involved in Trump Meshigas. When we think of Trumpism, he said, it is so antithetical to Judaism and it infiltrated our Jewish camp by a gang of hacks who raised their heads. The Sotmer Rebbe singled out specifically the use of modern technology as a distraction from Torah and the ultimate cause of Trump Meshigas in the community. Those who are connected to WhatsApp, he said, that's where it's coming from instead of Torah. The Satmar Rebbe lamented the viral nature of the Trumpist school of thought, you know, that Meshuggah stuff, saying that those involved are spreading incitement and are unfortunately successful in brainwashing large parts of our communities. People can't think straight. It's very painful. I was trying to keep quiet about it until now because I realized there is no one to talk to. The Satmar Rebbe's views on technology, however, have remained consistent over the years. He strictly forbids his followers to own computers except under dire circumstances or smartphones. The Satmar Rebbe is firmly opposed to Zionism. He once referred to a proposed draft of ultra-Orthodox Haredi men into the Israeli army as a decree worse than the annihilation of the Jewish people. And now he has highlighted Trumpism as a disease of the Haredim. King Charles III wants to make sure that the United Kingdom's chief rabbi can make it to his coronation ceremony next year, so much so that he's letting the Jewish leaders sleep over at his house. The coronation is set for May 6, 2023, which falls on a Saturday in the middle of Shabbat. Rabbi Ephraim Mirvis and his wife Valerie, who are Orthodox, of course can't travel by car or use electricity on Shabbat. King Charles' current residence before he moves into Buckingham Palace is Clarence House, located just a few minutes' walk from the palace. And so this Charlesian Carlingian sleepover allows the Mervises to walk to the ceremony. While a member of the rabbi's staff called the offer an amazing gesture, this is not the first time the king has accommodated Rabbi Mervis's religious observance. When Queen Elizabeth died, happened to be on a Thursday, the king's reception at Buckingham Palace was rescheduled early in the day Friday to allow Mervis to attend and then fulfill his rabbinical duties later in the day. Mervis, who is 66 years old, has been chief rabbi since 2013. He succeeded the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of blessed memory. A coronation on Shabbat is rare. In 1902, then chief rabbi Herman Adler attended the coronation of King Edward XII on Shabbat alongside members of the prominent Rothschild and Sassoon families. So there. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews round the world.
The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, Our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome back to Two Jewish. Our guest this morning, Emily Tampkin, is a prominent journalist. I was going to say a prominent Jewish journalist. That seems wrong, right? You're just a prominent journalist, senior <laughs> editor of the New Statesman, a British publication. She's the U.S. editor, author of The Influence of Soros. She's covered foreign affairs uh, at Foreign Policy and at BuzzFeed. Um, went to Columbia University, studied at Oxford, got a Fulbright scholarship. I could go through your whole cv but it's too impressive and it makes me feel like a failed and bad jew so i just wanted to say that um in creating bad jews um and you started to go back into the historical record of it um you you come in you explore some of the cultural differentiations that existed in the immigrant generations um tell us a little bit about the most interesting thing you discovered there oh um i so I basically look at the last century of American Jewish political, cultural life um, and how we've contested and debated what it means to be Jewish within that. One interesting thing about a century ago and that I hadn't realized before writing this book is the sort of, um, you know, we talk now often about Ashkenormativity. What I guess what I didn't realize was how pronounced that was a century ago to the point where when Sephardic Jews came and tried to rent in certain apartments in New York City, they were told, well, what, what, what is this? You're not even Jewish. You don't, you yeah. don't speak Yiddish. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't realize which, that. Which was really a shock for Sephardim, who always thought they were better than the Ashkenazim. So. Well, and it, it's sort of this tension in that earlier on in American history, most Jews who were here were, um, were Sephardic. And then it, it shifts in the 1800s. And you also have the tension between the, the German Jews who came over earlier in the 1800s and Jews from Eastern Europe, like my own family and many of our families who came over early in the 1900s. Um, so you have these different tensions between sort of the more established Ashkenazim, the, the more recent immigrants, and between Ashkenazim and Sephardic Jews. So um, that was interesting to me to see how, how the, the bad Jews label played out early on in the 20th century. Speaking of, I mean, I'm 
kind of love Jewish history myself. Uh, in looking at the immigration generation, first, you know, the Sephardim were here first, and then they were kind of overwhelmed by the German Jews. When the Ashkenazic Jews, that is the Eastern European Jews, we like to say, oh, they're from Russia, but of course they're from all kinds of other countries, Austro-Hungarian Empire and so on. When that big wave came over, they were not the favored form of Jews, right? No, absolutely. I think what you saw was that many of the Jewish establishments were run not by them, but by more established uh, American Jews who would come over earlier from Germany, who understood themselves to be first, you know, white Americans who prayed differently and who didn't really um, understand or want to understand that Jews from Eastern Europe thought of themselves as, as something else, as distinctive, as, as an ethnicity. Um, part of this is that one of the tensions that we see throughout the last century of American Jewish history is between security and distinctiveness. So, to what extent do I want to, if I'm an American Jew in a given decade, to what extent do I want to focus on being safe and on just, you know, seeming like everybody else and I, except that I worship differently? And to what extent do I think of this identity as something else? Um, and this was a tension that you certainly saw between German Jews and, or Jews of uh, German Jewish origin, I guess, and uh, newer arrivals. In the, in the 20th century, the early 20th century. So as the book um, continues, you talk more uh, about the deep political divisions. Uh, these are not new between right-wing and left-wing Jews in particular. Um, you know, I, I remember being startled because I, when I was growing up as a kid, I thought all Jews were left-wing and then discovered that my the German Jews in my family were definitely not, and that, that had historical bases. Um, tell us how that played out in the 20th century. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's conservative in the sort of um, the, 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 the sha-sha way of, of not really wanting to stand out, not wanting to speak up against various discriminations because you're concerned about your own immediate safety and belonging. And then there's also, especially in the post-war period, a trend of very influential conservative Jewish thought. So I write in the book um, about the neoconservative movement, which, uh, you know, people who started out as, self-avowed leftists and, and make a right turn, um, they never really gather, they never become a majority. But you know, if you, I, I talk about Commentary Magazine and, um, and Jewish support for various Republican politicians. And I do think that there's, although it's minority, it's a very influential stream of American Jewish thought. Uh, and we can still see it within various American Jewish communities today. Coming, you know, up to contemporary times, um, it has now moved from Jews calling other Jews bad Jews. Uh, for example, um, I mean, we'd, we'd have uh, communist Jews calling more conservative politically Jews bad Jews for not working against discrimination. And of course, those more conservative politically Jews critiquing left-wing Jews for their um, anti-Americanism and calling them bad Jews. But it, in more contemporary times, we're seeing this phrase used by non-Jews towards Jews. Can you explore that a little bit? Yes, and this isn't new either, although I think the level that it's, you know, it, it's so pronounced today. Um, and I don't think it's accidental that anti-Semitic rhetoric is also more pronounced in our political discourse today. So yes, I think you, you, know, you have and this comes back to the book on Soros, you have uh, people who are not Jewish who want to, in my in my sort of perception of this, want to push anti-Semitic rhetoric, but don't want to deal with the fact that they're doing that. And so say, well, I don't even think of that person as Jewish. 
Um, you hear this sometimes, like I'm, you know, Giuliani saying I'm more Jewish than George Soros, which you don't have to like George Soros. You can, you can, you know, please criticize him, but to, to um, make an assertion about his identity because you don't like him to me is, um, is unconscionable. And I think the fact that people can then turn to other Jews and say, no, no, they agree with me um, is, is problematic. And yet sometimes they do agree with them, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we saw this with the, with the Trump tweet. There were conservative Jews who came out and said, yes, I, I think he's right. I think that, I mean, the title of this book comes from, uh, from many things, but one of them is a, a 2011 tweet from pundit Ben Shapiro, who said there have always been bad Jews. And in the United States, these bad Jews vote for Democrats. So this is not, I mean, it's not brand new, but yes, there are, there will always be Jews who call other Jews bad. And there will always be Jews who provide cover to people who are not Jewish to say you're a bad Jew or, or further, you're not even really Jewish at all. Um, but what I invite readers to consider is that this is perhaps not the most productive way of having discussions and debates. And instead, uh, I'm, I'm not really expecting to like start the revolution here, but for my own, for personally, what I've tried to do is rather than say, no, I'm doing it right and you're doing it wrong, is say that I'm doing it in a way that's meaningful for me, that's intellectually and morally compelling, um, rather than say, well, I don't even think of that as Jewish. I like to say when I teach Jewish history that up until 1800, you had two choices. You could be an Orthodox Jew or you could be a bad Jew. And, and that did have to do with observance because there really weren't other options. There was variations between the, or the, the Ashkenazi and the Sephardi world, but really everybody was essentially Jewish. That's certainly not true today in which there's so much diversity. But when we use those terms bad Jews today, we're really are, are we still really talking about observance? I think in some cases, yes, but in, in many cases, no. In many cases, it's more it's about something else. It's about politics or it's about how you live your life or it's about um, your position with respect to Israel. And I, I, just to your point, I'm sometimes asked, well, what's different about American Jews compared to French Jews or British Jews? And one of the answers that I give is that I think um, American Jews and Jewishness is so pluralistic. You know, we don't have a single chief rabbi. The reform is the largest denomination here in this country. There are so many different ways to, to not just practice Judaism, but practice being Jewish in this country. Um, and so you're right. I, I completely agree with you that it's not just Orthodox or not. It's, it's where on this I don't even think of it as a spectrum. Like, where in this this web do you find yourself? Where in this web do you claim your own position as, a, as an American Jew? Where, um, so I don't want to get too personal here, but where do you feel like you fall on this continuum, on this spectrum? Well, we should say I do write about myself in the book and, and about my own family, both because it was useful as a narrative device to get us through 100 years, and also because, um, you know, if the book is going to be about challenging narratives that it felt more fair to the readers to also do it to myself. Um, I look, I write at the beginning of the book that I really wrestled with whether or not I should write a book like this um, because I didn't go to Hebrew school, because I will eat shellfish, you know, because my husband is not Jewish. Um, I hadn't been to Israel before writing this, although I have been twice since. But um, basically what I, what I came to decide is that while of course you need a certain level of knowledge and understanding to, to write this or any book, um, that framework that like, oh, I haven't checked off these five boxes and thus I'm not, you know, I'm not Jewish. Um, that's not a framework that I want to encourage. And I will say that since writing it, I found myself engaging more um, with being Jewish. Like we joined a synagogue while I was writing this book. 
you know, I take Ma- it. Maz- I have to say, time. Mazel Tov. I think, you know, that's... Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and it, part of it was that I was doing interviews and uh, people were saying like, oh, in my synagogue. And I thought that that sounded really nice. And I realized that this, this con- self-conception that I had was actually keeping me from engaging with something in a way that, um, that has turned out to be very meaningful and, and uh, has, has given me a real community. So, I, I mean, some people, <laughs> I do these interviews and they're like, are you a bit more liberal? Uh, and yes, this book definitely does have a point of view. But I also want to say that even though it is personal and though it does have a point of view, I really do try to give fair hearing to uh, a wide range of perspectives in this in this book. Uh, our current political climate is as polarized as I've personally ever seen it in my life. I expect it's as, pers- as polarized as... Most of us have noticed it in our lives um, that that has certainly affected the way that Jews talk about each other. Do you feel having looked at, you know, really a century of this kind of discussion? Do you feel that this is the most intense that that? I don't know, divide has been what I like to say is that this moment is unique, but it's not new. Um So if you look at, for example, you know, during Red Scare, the Red Scare, you have American Jewish organizations basically turning over names of people who of Jewish people who are thought to be communist sympathizers or socialist sympathizers to authorities. So I'm sure at that, you know, I can imagine that at that time for the people living through that, that felt extremely intense. I I, obviously we're in a very polarized moment. Um, In some ways, we're also, though, in a more pluralistic moment in that, you know, you have, um, for example, young queer Jews who really want to get into deep study of Jewish text, setting up their own basically like orthodox level egalitarian study outside of these traditional institutions. Um, but yes, it's a very polarized moment. And, and one of the things that I've tried to grapple with, with in this book is the paradox of pluralism, which is to say, like, if you're someone, which I am, who's, who likes to think of themselves as committed to pluralism, that means that you're going to end up having to accept as legitimate and authentic and real um, people who do not consider you to be any of those things. And we'll need to sit with that and sit with the fact that people who, who I, and I'm not saying that I need to like have Shabbat dinner with them, but I, I do need to understand that, that they're practicing Jewishness and Judaism in a way that is meaningful to them. Um, and, and that needs to be the, the starting point for any, discussion or debate. So I I want to throw one more piece in, which is often these divides between uh, bad Jews, good Jews, people that call each other bad Jews, um, are are within families. Has that always been true? I think, uh, at least in the time that I look at in my book, yes, absolutely. I think one of the things that comes up again and again in this book is intermarriage and and fear of it and, and um, both in and of itself and also as a sort of, um, you know, embodiment of assimilation, acculturation, and loss of distinctiveness. Um, you know, I, I, that's, it's, it's been something that's been painful and grappled with for, for many families throughout the last century. Um, yes, I think, you know, I, I, I quote in the book uh, Rabbi Angela Bookdahl, who says that uh, Jewishness is like a family and that you can all you, you you can marry and you can be born and you can be adopted. You know, for some it's a religion, for some it's a culture. Um, but what she doesn't say, which I also think is true, is that in families we don't always like each other so much. And that's true <laughs> of, of, both, of both Jews more broadly. And that's true indeed of, of actual literal Jewish families. 
<laughs> it's even true of non-Jewish families. Imagine Absolutely, that. Yes. <laughs> um, I want to thank uh, Emily Tampkin for a great visit here on Two Jewish. Uh, the book, it's a great read, is Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Where can people go to find out more about you? Oh, you can. I mean, the book is available wherever books are sold, hopefully. Um, it, it, on, on definitely it is. Websites, little bookstores. And I am on Twitter uh, at, at Emily C. Tampkin. Um, and I write for the New Statesman, so just newstatesman.com slash international. Emily, thank you so much. Thank you. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on To Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week for another great edition of Two Jewish. And don't forget, join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night for services and Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. But this week, it's at 7 p.m. downtown at the Jewish History Museum for downtown Shabbat. Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services in person and on Zoom and Facebook, respectively. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org for more information on our congregation and how to join. Our play out this morning comes from Karen Pellis, the lovely song, Batli Pitom. You came up to me suddenly. My friends, have a Shavuot Tov, a healthy week and a week we pray of peace. <laughs>
sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.